Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, January 31st. The Alberta government plans to unveil parental rights legislation this week. What does it mean for Albertans and is this legislation even needed? We discuss with Dr. Christopher Wells, professor from the Department of Child and Youth Care at McEwen University. Next, what impact could psychedelic-assisted therapy have on mental health treatment and how could it be integrated into Canada's healthcare system? Mornings with Sue and Andy producer Reese Schaefer brings us details on this unique style of therapy in part three of our 2024 health series. And finally, kids and money. How can parents start the discussion around teaching their kids to be money-wise? We get some tips from Maya Korbich, chartered accountant and author of the new book, From Piggy Banks to Stocks, The Ultimate Guide for Young Investors. This week, the Alberta government plans to unveil parental rights legislation. What does it mean for parents here in our province, and is it needed? Joining us to discuss is Dr. Christopher Wells, Associate Professor in the Department of Child and Youth Care, Faculty of Health and Community Studies at McEwen University. Very Very good morning to you, Doctor. Good morning. Well, let's just kick it off with your thoughts on Premier Danielle Smith's announcement about forthcoming parental rights legislation in schools. What are your thoughts? I think it's it's disappointing, but perhaps not surprising. We've seen uh, this uh, be part of a uh, far-right conservative uh, playbook uh, all across the United States and creeping into Canada with uh, policies now passed in uh, New Brunswick and, and Saskatchewan. Let's talk about some of the myths that have been circulating. And social media has not been very helpful in terms of trying to stop any of that. There are some foolish, ridiculous myths that have gone around that certainly have gotten parents in an uproar when they are not even true, like the litter box in the classrooms kind of thing. So talk to us a little bit about some of the myths and and why and how we can dispel them. Well, you're right. There's so much disinformation and misinformation going uh, around. Uh, it can be hard to tell what is real news from uh, fake news and truth from fiction. So, yeah, the, this litter box um, is is one in particular where, you know, students are now identifying as animals and are asking for litter boxes to be put into schools. Like You can imagine how ludicrous that actually, you know, is. And, and of course, behind... You know, these myths, when you dig into them, you can't find any case anywhere where these kinds of things are actually happening. But there is a lot of transphobia. There's a lot of hysteria, you know, behind these things. Or another big uh, myth we hear, and we do hear this one quite a bit in Canada, that schools are keeping secrets from parents. That by, you know, learning about lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans issues, uh, all of a sudden somehow it's like a virus or contagion that students are going to identify or they're going to transition overnight and they're going to have these traumatic surgeries without parental uh, consent. So, you know, once you start to unpack them, you can see how, you know, ludicrous they they actually are. None of this is, is actually happening. Schools aren't keeping secrets from parents. And of course, you know, it's if parents want Want to know how their kids identify all they really have to do is ask them and if those children feel safe having that conversation with their parents well they will surely tell them but if they don't feel safe you know it can place them at great uh, risk of of harm dr wells how do you interpret the balance that premier smith talks about between children forming their identities and parents knowing what's taught in schools that term balance can be pretty ambiguous what are you, what's your takeaway well, yeah, exactly. What, what does that actually mean? You know, I think, um, you know, we often talk about this, this false balance. 
that happens, you know, where, where we try to make these false kinds of equivalencies. You know, the, the job of schools is, is education and, and helping to support the health and well-being of, uh, of the students. And parents are a really important uh, part of that. In fact, you know, next to the family, schools have perhaps one of the largest roles and influences in the lives of, of young people. You know, and if it's not safe at home, well, you you hope you can go to school and and find trusted adults that will support you, um, you know, uh, for for who you are. Uh, so yeah, we have to wait and see what this this legislation actually uh, or this policy. We're not quite sure what it is actually, um, what it's uh, what it's announcing. And in your thoughts on you know whatever it is, whatever this legislation, this policy might be, how, how does that have an effect on the on the students then? Well, we know whatever, whatever it is, it's not going to be good news, right? Um, because, you know, there really isn't a need for any parental, parental rights policies. There's already, you know, in the, the education system, the, the ability for parents to opt their children out of discussions, for example, on religion and uh, sexuality used to be able that they were able to uh, opt out of discussions around sexual orientation. But Jim Prentice removed that partly because they knew it was actually a violation of human rights and was... Uh, was unconstitutional. So, um, uh, it, it, you know, it, again, it, it's concerning to know that this is happening. We've seen the effects that it's had in other provinces, and, and what it does is it it places is a uh, an enormous burden and stress on these these young people who are just trying to you know navigate um, who they are and their identity and, and focus on their schoolwork. It's uh, also interesting to to look at you know, to the east and to the west of us, either side of the province, because this is the Alberta stance, according to Premier Danielle Smith. Uh, but how unique is this compared to other provinces? Are they looking at uh, similar legislation? Well, uh, we've seen it in Saskatchewan for sure, and we know from the Saskatchewan example that the, the Premier there um, had to invoke the notwithstanding clause because it was not only illegal, it's it's immoral, these, these kinds of policies that don't help vulnerable uh, students, they hurt them. Uh, and every teacher association, every mental health organization, um, the child and youth advocates all oppose these kinds of policies. You know, children are not property, right? They have their own individual rights and, and needs. And it's our job as the trusted adults and the educators to help look after their best interests. Your thoughts, Professor. You mentioned the term transphobia. I say anti-LGBTQ plus sentiment overall. Is that what you do? You think that's truly what's behind this? Because I do think it is a huge part. Absolutely, and we see these global winds of populism, right? In, in places like you know uh, Russia, that's made you know even talking about LGBTQ issues a crime. Uh, comparing it to some kind of evil propaganda and certainly in the United States. And so it, it's it's really concerning, concerning to see this trend start to creep into Canada. And it seems to be part of this new conservative ideological playbook that, you know, you scapegoat the most vulnerable and the least understood, which are um, you know, transgender individuals. And it's, it's so unconscionable to be targeting young people right like nobody wakes up in the morning and as a as a young person and says they're going to transition overnight there's a there's a long process there's many medical uh professionals and and psychological professionals involved and and for many of these young people you know the the option of not being able to transition is death 
right? The incredibly high suicide rates. Imagine, you know, if if you felt that you were your body was was betraying you and you couldn't live your true uh, identity. Mm-hmm. The enormous uh, stress that that places on on oneself. And so, really, what we want to do is just continually surround these young people with all the support that we possibly can. Thank you for your time this morning, Dr. Wells. We appreciate it. Well, it certainly will not be the last of this story. No. So uh, happy to chat again. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's really the the time for, for people to, to come together and, and do what's right and, and look after our young people because they are our future. Dr. Christopher Wells, Associate Professor in the Department of Child and Youth Care, Faculty of Health and Community Studies at McEwen University. In our health series, continuing straight through this week and today, asking the question, what impact could psychedelic-assisted therapy have on mental health treatment and how could it be integrated into Canada's health care system? QR Calgary's Reese Schaefer explores the potential and ethical concerns around the use of psychedelics. Psychedelics. The word conjures up images of peace and love and the hippies from the 60s and 70s, but a growing amount of research is showing that these kind of drugs could have real therapeutic uses in mental health treatment. But psychedelics is a pretty broad term, so what exactly is under this umbrella? I spoke with Radom Pentarenkar, director of the Canadian Centre for Psychedelic Sciences, to get a better understanding of what exactly we're talking about. There is no one consistent definition of what's included under this umbrella term. When I say psychedelics, I mean classical psychedelics, and that includes only four substances. That's magic mushrooms, LSD, DMT, and mescaline. Uh, However, other substances like MDMA and ketamine uh, in recent years have been also grouped under this umbrella as they also sometimes cause visual effects. And MDMA also operates on the serotonin uh, pathway, same as classical psychedelics. Interest in research in psychedelics goes all the way back centuries and really started to get some traction in the 50s. So why did it take so long to get here and look at psychedelics for their therapeutic benefits? For more insight, I spoke with Erica Dick, Professor of History of Health and Social Justice in the Department of History at the University of Saskatchewan. Yeah, you know, I think the sort of first generation of psychedelic science or really clinical applications of in the 1950s in particular, really sort of gathered momentum. But by the 1970s, that research had really trickled to a halt. There was a pretty strong war on drugs that was uh, introduced by Richard Nixon. And this idea that, you know, some drugs should be put into a category of dangerous, of not medically valuable or beneficial. There was a UN convention in 1971 that really sort of put a firm stamp on psychedelics in this category of high risk for abuse potential and low uh, chances of medicinal benefit. And despite the research and the findings at the time, I think that those categories really stuck. And that's certainly where psychedelics still exist today, although research is starting to chip away at some of those regulatory classifications. So I think there's been a real dark period or a sort of dormant period in terms of the legal research that has been taking place. Now it appears we're coming out of this dormant period and there's a renewed interest in studying psychedelics for therapeutic uses. So where does the research stand today? Here's Rodham Pentarinkar again. The findings seem very promising. Um, There is mounting evidence that psychedelics uh, are effective for a variety of mental health conditions, including depression, anxiety, OCD, uh, potentially eating disorders, chronic pain, the list goes on. And really, uh, the effect sizes we're seeing are quite large, um, a lot bigger than what we expect, say, from other 
frontline treatments like uh, antidepressants. But what makes psychedelic therapy different from traditional antidepressant therapy? With insight, here's Rob Tange, clinical assistant professor in the University of Calgary Department of Psychiatry and Surgery. The important thing is, is that the, the data that we're seeing for psychedelics is always in combination with therapy. So it's a very unique process where in most drug development, you're talking about developing a molecule. Uh, what we're seeing here is the development of treatment protocols along with the molecule. Uh, that's actually really, really quite unique and not something that we see with the other uh, medications. Uh, the other part is that unlike most medications that you take for um, mental illness, you end up taking a medication for long periods of time. The uh, research that we see right now are for large doses of MDMA or psilocybin over just two or three treatment protocols. And then that's it. So a uh, very different process where you're aggressively treating the underlying cause of the depression or the PTSD and then moving forward without a medication. Are there any ethical concerns for integrating this kind of therapy into our healthcare system? And how do we ensure equitable access to this kind of therapy? That's a million dollar question. It will require a variety of different voices at the table. And I, I think we need that because we need to respect the sort of diverse ways that people are taking psychedelics in the first place. You know, whether it's only through a psychiatrist that one can get psychedelics, I think people will still seek out their own supplies if their wait lists are too long. So we, I think we need to bring a variety of heads to the table um, as we think about what kind of safe regulation could be in place so that we can tackle some of the questions about stigma and reputation alongside those ethical questions about access, demand, and safety. Uh, we really want to make sure, I think, that we promote a kind of safe context for consuming psychedelics, and that's going to have to combat some of the stigma, but also not overwhelm things in the other direction to suggest that these are entirely safe and anyone can take them. So what about the risks? As with any new medication coming onto the market, it would seem foolish to assume there would be no risks or side effects attached to it. Here's Rodin Pintarinka again. Classical psychedelics are almost impossible to uh, overdose on. It's almost impossible that they would cause physical harm, whereas MDMA and ketamine could very well be dangerous if you take too much of these substances. When you look at the risk-benefit ratio and the harms that can come from them, the harms are much lower than many other medications that we prescribe today. There is always the risk of unlicensed therapists and people who, you know, took a course and now say, oh, I'm a, I'm a psychedelic therapist because I was, you know, kind of dabbling in this before. Uh, that's a big risk. And making sure that the provinces put together appropriate regulations to protect patients from these kind of issues. Psychedelics have, have for a long time carried that heavy stigma, this idea that they're going to you know, be addictive or toxic or that they're going to cause some kind of dangerous and violent behaviors. And I think um, research is now showing that not only were those claims overblown in the past, a lot, of these, uh, a lot of these substances are being used safely as medications and they're having better results than some of the other contemporary competitors on the market today. And it's starting to change that stigma, certainly in the last 10 years. I think the stories about psychedelics have begun to chip away at that reputation. Where will psychedelic therapy go in the next five or 10 years? It's, it's hard to say. But all the experts I spoke to are very optimistic about the potential of this kind of treatment for mental health issues. For the 2024 Health Series, I'm Marie Schaefer.
and kids and money. I have two kids. They are complete opposites about handling money. One spends immediately, the other saves forever. So how can we as parents, grandparents even, start the discussion around teaching the kids to be money wise? Joining us this morning to talk about it is Maya Korbeck, who's a chartered accountant and author from Piggy Banks to Stocks, The Ultimate Guide for Young Investors. Hi, Maya. Thanks so much for joining us. Hello, I'm happy to be here. Okay, so I mean, how do we how do we teach the kids first of all to even understand and know about money because for them it's mostly they live in a world of, you know, tap or debit cards whereas we most of us when we were kids, we had cash money in our hands and it's not the norm anymore. Makes it more difficult to teach, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, the cashless economy has definitely made it harder to teach kids about money, but I always suggest that, you know, parents start with teaching them about coins and different monetary denominations. So as soon as we see our kids, you know, play the store or starting to get interested in money, or if we're in the store with them and they want us to purchase things for them, at that point, we know that they understand that money is used as a means of exchange to get things. Um, so at that time, we really should be talking to them about money and money shouldn't be taboo. And I know a lot of us have grown up in families where money was taboo. So that would be kind of the starting point. All right, that's a starting point. But again, it it's an interesting time for these kids because, A, they maybe have had you know, money accumulating for the first time ever, and they've watched us for years for a certain extent using credit cards and debit cards. Does that put a wrinkle into this whole thing, Maya? Because you know, a lot of the times cash is, is kind of new to them. Um, I don't think it does, actually. Um, it's really interesting because over the years that I have been teaching about money, uh, for some reason, kids are actually able to really switch from understanding you know, just the regular currency to understanding the online currency or cashless economy because a lot of them play video games and they use that cashless um, economy in video games. You know, they have to earn certain uh, tokens to continue playing or to buy certain uh, merchandise or as they call them, skins uh, within video games. So somehow um, I find that kids are actually a little bit more um, or they're better equipped to um, pick up on that cashless economy than us who actually grew up with, um, you know, using real money in everyday transactions. So maybe more savvy than we give them credit for. Okay, so uh, as a chartered accountant and as an author now, how, uh, you know, can you give us some of the tips on and how we maybe start this conversation? Oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. So one of the ways that I like to teach my kids um, is to actually just use everyday examples or everyday situations to talk about money and teach them about money. So there's no need to, you know, create certain worksheets. I mean, if you want to, you can, you can buy books. Um, they definitely provide a good, those are definitely good resources, but, you know, it would be conversations like, you know, you're in a store and your child is asking you to buy them a certain toy. So instead of saying, hey, I forgot my wallet at home or, um, you know, I can't afford it, which is not necessarily true because most of us can afford, for example, like a $10 toy, um, the conversation should be more like, you know what, um, right now, uh, we do not need that item because you have another similar toy. Or maybe if the, if the answer is, I really cannot afford it right now, um, instead of you know, just saying that we can follow up with, hey, uh, we can't afford it right now, but let's make a plan how we can save up for this particular toy and actually afford it. So um, it, it's really just talking to them openly about, you know, what money can buy, what your budget is, um, without going into too many details and stressing them out, if that makes any sense. Yeah. 
Speaking this morning with uh, Maya Korbich, of course, a chartered accountant and author from Piggy Banks to Stocks, the ultimate guide for young investors. And Maya, you know, we've been chronicling conversations surrounding the children and the money they spent. Is it important to talk about household finances and include your children in decision-making, not decision-making, but the decisions you make and explaining why you make these decisions as a house? Oh, absolutely. And it, and I think we have to be just mindful um, to make it age appropriate. So, you know, if we're talking to younger children, we don't want to give them as many details. I always say that, you know, you talk about it uh, because it is, it's kind of like brushing teeth, right? Like we, we teach our kids to uh, personal hygiene and just becomes a normal part of life. Talking about finances should become normal part of life, but you only give them enough information that they can handle. So, um, you know, when you see that they ask questions, then you can start giving more information. But, you know, if you explain something and they're perfectly happy with your explanation, they don't ask any more questions, they just go off and play, then that's obviously enough information. Um, and so sometimes, you know, if we provide too much information, sometimes we can, there, there could be some sort of anxiety uh, for kids because maybe they start worrying about money so we don't we want to reduce that but we do want to inform them so that they know that they have to you know finances are part of everyday life and they need to think about that all right let's uh, last question i want to get to is you know because you talk about it in the book as well the stock market investing i think there are a lot of adults who don't really get it so how can we teach the kids about it because they really should start some understanding at a, at a young age that that's sort of where you want to start you know thinking about putting your money investing uh, one day maybe you can buy a home if you do it right Oh, absolutely. And I, I like to actually tie investing to goals that excite kids. Um, you know, when we talk about retirement, that's so far away, even for some of us adults. Uh, but when we talk about buying a first home or buying a first car, that gets them excited and more interested in investing. Um, and I know that a lot of people are intimidated by investing, but with kids, um, you know, we can just start off with first saving the money, putting it into a savings account, and maybe like showing them online how much their money is earning, and then telling them, hey, you know what, this is not as much interest or not as much money that your money is earning you, so let's start investing because that's a better way to earn money. Um, and then, you know, uh, switching them, let's say, from savings account to a term deposit, which is fairly safe investment vehicle. And from that point on, when they're more comfortable teaching them about stocks and bonds and ETFs and index funds and all of those other uh, financial instruments. Maya, thank you for your topic, uh, your time this morning on this topic, because I know a lot of parents out there are just looking for some direction. Mm -hmm. uh, we appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to talk about this. Perfect. It sounds like you know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. That is Maya Korbich, uh, chartered accountant and author of the book From Piggy Banks to Stocks, The Ultimate Guide for Young Investors.